Have you ever done something nice for somebody and you didn't get a thank you? I let that bother me a lot more than I probably should. I, you know, and it doesn't really register with me right at first, but the more I think about it, the more I start to think, how ungrateful. I mean, not even a text, no email, no, no, no phone call, nothing, not a note. Um, how can a person lack such basic courtesy? That's what I begin to think. They don't, they don't appreciate me. Did I do something wrong? Did I offend them by doing something nice? I wasn't looking for anything in return, but a little gratitude, a little acknowledgement would be nice. What's wrong with this person? Don't act like you've never thought those things before, okay? It's a perfectly natural thing for us to think. You do something nice, you expect a little gratitude, just a little acknowledgement. That's not too much to ask, but can I share with you all a fable? I don't share a lot of fables uh, from the pulpit, but I find this one especially helpful. There was a, a king, a very wise and good king, uh, and one day a, a poor farmer came to his king with a basket of his finest produce, the first fruits of his crop, and he very humbly knelt before the king with his basket of vegetables, and he said, King, please accept this gift from me and my family. Well, the king was so impressed that he gave as a gift to this poor farmer all the land that was adjacent to his farm. He doubled the man's property, changed his life. Well, there was a wealthy nobleman in the kingdom who heard about this, and immediately the gears started turning in his mind. Well, if the king did all that for a basket of vegetables... So the very next day, the nobleman comes before the king with a very strong and beautiful horse. And he kneels before him and he says, My king, please accept the finest horse in all my stables as a gift from me to you. And the king simply said, Thank you. The nobleman waited a moment. He said, My king, is that all? And the wise king looked at him and said, Sir, the farmer gave his vegetables to me. You gave this horse to yourself. And see, the, the, the issue here at stake is not the quality of the gift, it's the motivation of the giver, right? Why do I get upset if I do something nice and, and nobody thanks me for it? Because deep down, I was not interested purely in doing something nice. I wanted credit. I wanted acknowledgement. I wanted to be recognized for it. The nice thing isn't enough all by itself, and that's why I get all bent out of shape when it's not recognized, when it's not rewarded, even if the reward is just a simple thank you. So to put it very simply, there's a hypocrisy in my motivation. My motives are hypocritical if it bothers me that I don't get anything in return, right? Well, that may seem like a small thing. Okay, you do something nice, you don't get a thank you. Big deal, right? But what if we apply the standard to bigger issues? What if we start talking about spiritual things, the things of God. Because that's what Jesus does here in Matthew chapter 6. Quite brilliantly, Jesus brings this issue to bear in our hearts right here in the Sermon on the Mount, and he spends a good bit of the chapter on this topic. It's important to him. He spends almost an entire chapter on it. Jesus is going to, uh, to put things in reverse on us, as he often does. If you've been with us or if you follow our sermons on the internet, on our website, we, we, we went through Matthew chapter 5 over a couple of weeks. In Matthew 5, Jesus reverses our religious assumptions. What we thought it meant to love God and obey God, Jesus reverses that and he shows us the true heart of God, that he's not concerned so much about externals or assumptions, but he wants to bring us to the heart of God so that our hearts are changed. Right? Well, here in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is going to reverse 
our, um, our assumptions concerning motivation, right? That it's not just what we do that matters. In fact, much more importantly, Jesus says it's why we do it that matters most to God. It's why we do it. Why you do what you do literally makes all the difference in the world. And we see that here in Matthew 6. Look again with me at verse 1, where Jesus introduces this topic that he spends the better part of the chapter on. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. This is a warning. Jesus does not say, Don't. As a command, he says, beware, as if he's talking about something that for us is a trap. And I say that sincerely because I think we're getting to the heart of what Jesus wants us to see here. Beware. This is something you can do without realizing it. This is something that perhaps you can go in your entire life and no one would ever call you out on this and bring it to your attention. Why not? Why should we beware? Because you notice this, Jesus is not talking about doing bad things right here. He's not talking about overt sin. He's talking about good things. He calls it practicing righteousness. The, the three examples that Jesus provides for us in the coming verses, he talks about generous giving, prayer, and fasting. These are good things, not bad things. But Jesus says, beware. So in other words, Jesus is not uh, putting a sour note on the good things themselves. They're good. He affirms that they're good. He's saying, beware of why you do it, because why you do it matters more to God than the thing that you do, okay? So the issue here, again, is not the what, it's the why. And Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before others so that you would be noticed by them. Y'all, I I shouldn't need to preach this. It should be self-evident that in the heart of every single person, I can say it with confidence, in the heart of every person is the desire to be noticed, to be approved of, to be accepted, to be applauded, to be admired. Every single one of us, those things feel as necessary to us as the air that we breathe. Somebody's got to notice me and approve of me. Sometimes I'll hear a person kind of flippantly say, oh, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I guarantee you that person owns a mirror. We all do. We all care how we look. We all care how we're perceived. Everybody. We can say we don't, but there's no... The proof is in the pudding. We care. Our hearts betray us in this. That that we want to be included. We want to be esteemed. I desperately want to be thought of in a positive way in your eyes. I want you to think well of me. We all feel that way. Right? So what is Jesus saying we should beware of? What's the threat to us here? Okay, here's the threat. God calls you to do something in single-minded devotion to him. And yet, inevitably for us as human beings, our thoughts immediately begin to turn to, if I do this thing God calls me to do, will it be noticed? What will other people think of me, whether good or bad? Will I be applauded? Will I be thanked? Will I be scoffed at and and excluded from certain social circles if I'm obedient to God? Will I get credit for it? Is this going to boost the opinion that other people have of me, or is it going to diminish their opinion of me? Because those things matter to us. We can't pretend otherwise. They do. And so Jesus comes along and says, beware. But he doesn't just say, be careful about it. He gives us a very stern promise that he associates with it. Do you notice what he says? He says, if your motivation is rooted in the opinion of other people, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. 
You may get some credit, some kudos from other people, but God strikes it from the record. God takes no pleasure in it. It's as if it never happened at all. You get no reward from him. Now, when we think about what this means for us, we can try to apply it very generally, which is good, but you know, Jesus gives us some specifics here. He doesn't leave us hanging with this, this kind of ambiguous idea. I mean, well, I, don't know if I'm, I don't know if my motivations are good or bad, right? So he's going to show us not an exhaustive list. He's only going to give us three things. We're going to look at two of them today. But he's going to give us examples of what he means when he talks about acts of righteousness that are poorly motivated. Look at verse 2. He's going to talk first about giving. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. First things first, Jesus assumes that his followers give to the poor. This is not a hypothetical. He assumes that we give to the poor. It's part of what we do, okay? But here's the problem. You see his concern is not the what, it's the why, right? Don't blow a trumpet before you. Don't toot your own horn is literally what Jesus is saying here when you give. Don't give hoping that other people are going to see and take notice and honor you for your generosity. Jesus says, truly, people who do that, he calls them hypocrites, people who hypocritically give, they have their reward in full. You know what that means? That means that whatever praise and attention they receive for their giving, that's all they get. Whatever that little fickle, temporary, ultimately meaningless praise is, whatever that opinion is that other people offer to us, the thing I was seeking, Jesus says, that's all the reward you get. Enjoy it while it lasts because it's gone and then nothing else comes of it. You get no praise from God. Now you may be like me. I, you know, so there are times where I'll look at a certain scripture and I'll immediately think, this is not a problem for me. I don't do this. I don't got to walk around blowing, tooting my own horn, trying to show off you know, being ostentatious in my giving, making sure everybody sees, bragging about it on the internet. I, you know, I don't do any of that stuff. But y'all, we have to recognize this. I've got to recognize this, that our hearts are deceitful. That just because, you know, we, we read this and we think, oh man, guys are walking around blowing trumpets. I mean, I'm not doing that. But listen, get back to the heart of the issue right here, what Jesus is saying. You have to ask yourself, you have to diagnose your own heart. Remember, if Jesus is going to talk to you about your heart, only you really know the condition of your own heart. I don't, I don't really know your heart. You don't really know mine. Not really. And so I came up with a couple of questions. We could ask questions all day of our heart concerning giving. Okay, giving specifically. Here's the example. Dig a little deeper. When you give, when you give, which is a good thing to do, when you give, do you expect a thank you? And do you get resentful if, if a thank you never comes? When you give, are you thinking about how nice the tax break is going to be? When you give to the church, if you give to the church, are you thinking, I'm going to get some preferential treatment from the pastor because I've given? And y'all, that works both ways. If the pastor knows somebody is giving, do I, am I tempted to give preferential treatment in that case? Right? It's an issue of my heart too. Uh, when you give, are you thinking, who can I very subtly tell about uh, my giving to, you know, in a, in a humble way? And we, you know, you know, when I, when I was, you know, I wrote a check to St. Jude the other day, you know, and I was just, and I just, you know, very, very 
subtle, very humble, you know, but I, I, I want to be noticed. I want to get credit for it, right? Y'all, this, this is an issue for us that if we, if we recognize the deceitfulness of our own heart, mine the same as yours, Jesus says, if you give with any sense of wondering, hoping that other people will take notice, then your attention has been diverted. Your heart has been divided. And you're not giving out of single-hearted, single-minded devotion to God, which is the whole point. Somebody gets helped, you've given, that's a good thing, right? But Jesus says you get no reward for that because you didn't give for the right reason, ultimately. And that should, that should trouble us. That should scare us, because I know the condition of my own heart. And so Jesus doesn't leave us hanging there. He gives us some practical wisdom. You notice what he says? He says, when you give, don't what? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Isn't that a great illustration? So that your giving will be in secret. Give in secret. Now, y'all understand real quickly the principle here. We can't overgeneralize or overapply. Sometimes there's a public need that you can meet only publicly. Jesus is not saying, don't do it. If you see a guy on the street down on his luck and you, you can buy him a meal, well, that's in public, okay? That, it, Jesus is not saying, well, that doesn't count because it wasn't in secret, okay? Now, understand this. There. We're not, we don't throw a blanket over this and misapply it entirely. Just because something's done in secret doesn't make it righteous somehow, okay? So we can, we can twist that, too, if we're not careful. But we understand the point here that Jesus is saying... If your giving is done in secret, if nobody else knows about it, then can you do a check on the condition of your own heart? Nobody else knows. Right? There's no guarantee in that case that it's a righteous act, but it's far more likely to be, isn't it? Because nobody else sees it. And so the question I have to, if I reverse the question on myself here, would I be a generous person if nobody else ever knew about it? If there was no tax break? I mean, would I be generous if, if, the, if, the, if the cover never came off and people couldn't see my generosity? Would I still do it? That's why Jesus says, listen, when you give, do it as, as humbly and discreetly as you possibly can. Because in that case, you know the condition of your own heart. I'm not doing this to be noticed and applauded and thanked. I'm doing this out of a love for God. There's, there's a higher opportunity for sincerity if nobody sees, okay? I think that's the point here. So if you never got credit, if you never got a thank you, if you never got a tax break, would you be a generous person? We've got to diagnose our own heart in this. That's why Jesus says, give discreetly. Am I giving my vegetables to the king or am I giving my horse to myself, right? What's my motivation? We find out our true motivation a lot of times in secret when nobody else is there to see it. Now scroll ahead with me to verse 16. The second example, we're going to look at another day because it's so much bigger, the example of prayer. Look at verse 16 with me, Matthew 6. This is the third example. Jesus says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they'll be noticed by men when they're fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Again, Jesus assumes his followers will fast, which is something I need to hear today. Um, but y'all, very, very generally, let me say fasting, very generally, if fasting is denying yourself food and drink, uh, you know, or, or maybe your cell phone. You know, it's, it's denying yourself something that's vital to you, something that you feel is necessary. 
You do it for a time in order to turn your heart, your mind, your, your focus completely to God. Okay? Fasting. In ancient Israel, in the time of Jesus, the Jews would fast at certain designated times throughout the year. The whole nation would have a fast together. But then you individually or your family, you could designate specific times to fast otherwise. Maybe once or twice a week for some people if they wanted to be especially uh, rigorous and righteous with their behavior, okay? So they would fast on their own also. But just like with giving, Jesus says, listen, when you fast, fasting's good, but when you do it, don't do it to be noticed. Don't make a show. He says, don't walk around with a gloomy face. Hey, Wayne, what's wrong today? Oh, I'm so hungry because I'm fasting, right? You just outed yourself. You just did the very thing that Jesus is saying not to do. You don't, I don't care how humble I come across in that moment. I've lost my reward. I've done it for the wrong reason. So Jesus says, wash your face. Act like a normal person. Don't let anybody know you're doing it. What would be the point in that? Because you're doing it ultimately for God, aren't you? Why would you want to draw attention to yourself unless, of course, your goal is not to do it for God. It's to show off how good and religious you are. Jesus is getting to the heart of the issue again here. Fasting is good. You should do it, right? But why you do it matters most. Now, y'all, in both cases, I'm sure you noticed this. With giving and fasting, in both examples, Jesus makes a very powerful statement. He says, do it in secret because your Father sees what is done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do you notice that? In both cases, Jesus makes that statement. That is such a powerful statement, really on two levels, okay? First, and, and, we, and if you're a good church person, you know this already, but man, you really think about this. God sees what is done in secret. God sees you down to the very bottom. God sees your heart. God knows your motivations, whether good or bad. People make assumptions about you. God makes no assumptions. God is not ever wondering what you're really thinking or what you're really up to or why you're doing something. He knows because he's God, okay? We need to understand that about his power and the intimacy with which he relates to us, okay? But you notice also the second thing Jesus says, your father, God, who sees in secret, will reward you. Remember the lesser rewards Jesus has already told us about? Being honored, being noticed, being approved of, being applauded by people. Jesus says, if that's what you're aiming for, then that's all you get. That's the lesser reward. Ultimately, it's fleeting, it's useless, it's fickle. You shouldn't pursue it. But God rewards those who obey him from a pure heart. God rewards those who obey him out of purity. Now, I like the sound of that. All right, I'm going to get something in return here. What does Jesus mean when he says God will reward me? Well, he doesn't tell us. And y'all, that may be a point of frustration for you. Say, Jesus is saying, okay, God's going to reward you. Okay, well, tell me what that reward looks like. Crickets. He didn't tell us. And y'all, it's so obviously purposeful. Jesus does not tell us what the reward is. You know why? Because he knows my heart. What, imagine this. Jesus says, your father who sees your secret giving, Kyle, he'll reward you with more money. I mean, isn't that what I want? Isn't that what my heart wants? Isn't that what the reward ought to be? I give of my money generously. God gives me more in return, right? There's a lot of preaching that says that's true. Isn't that what I want? If I fast, if I fast and pray and really devote myself to God and I do it the right way, God's going to give me all the stuff I asked for. Surely that's, that's what the reward is, isn't it? Y'all, that's not the way it works. 
Because God knows the deceitfulness of your heart and mine. If I knew that the reward was more money in place for the money that I just gave, what would my motivation become? I would not give out of a clear, single-minded act of devotion to God. I would be giving in exchange for the thing that I thought God was going to give me in return. I know it about myself. There's no doubt about it. If I knew that that was the nature of the reward, if I fast and pray, God's going to give me a yes to everything I prayed for, then I'm not actually doing it for God, which is the whole point. I'm doing it for the things that God might give me in return. And that's just as bad as if I'm doing it for you to notice it. The motivation is the issue here. That's why Jesus doesn't tell us what the reward is. Now, the implication is that the reward here is spiritual and not tangible. That the reward is not more money in return, necessarily. That the reward is not a yes to all your prayers. But that the reward is something spiritual. You give in secret, and in a sense, you get a secret or a private or an unseen reward. I think what Jesus means when he says, your father who sees in secret will reward you, I think very basically what he means is you're going to get more of God. God who sees rewards with more of himself. He is the reward. And anybody who truly wants to know and love God would look at that and say, that's all the reward I could ever need and want. I don't need more money. I don't need a yes to all my prayers. Half the stuff I pray for is wrong. What I need is more of God. What I need is the, 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 the presence and the, the closeness, the intimacy, the abounding fruitfulness of God in my life. He's the reward. And if that's the case, and I think it is, if that's the case, an unseen devotion receives an unseen reward, something you can't hold in your hands, but is nonetheless there and is wonderful. Now, let's go back to the beginning and ask ourselves, is that enough for me? Is it enough for me to do good things solely for God with God as the reward? If nobody else ever knows, is it enough for my heart to devote myself to God, for God, with God as my reward? I know as a Christian I'm supposed to say yes. I know that. But I also know the intoxication of your approval and I want it so bad. I know my own heart. I hope you know yours. Okay? So what do we do? How, wh- how do we turn the corner here? How do you take something as powerful and mysterious as the motivation of your heart and turn it away from people and turn it to God instead? How do we do that? Uh, the Bible gives us a lot of good answers. I want to show us one that I think is extremely powerful from Galatians chapter 2. You can turn in your right to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be in there for just a moment. Galatians 2, a letter of the Apostle Paul. This is actually a pretty shocking chapter of the Bible where Paul, the Apostle, tells a story about a run-in, a very serious, contentious moment with another Apostle, Peter. Two of the absolute pillars of the early church, perhaps the two most, most known and, um, and uh, esteemed apostles there ever were. Peter, James, Paul, John. That's about it, right? When we're talking about the big ones, right? The big guys. Here's two of them. Where Paul defies Peter to his face in public. He calls him out. Why? That's the story. Well, what happened is this. Peter was hanging out with Gentile Christians. People who were 
previously pagans, unclean, non-Jewish people, but they became Christians. Peter's hanging out with them as he should until some very important men who were Jewish Christians show up in town, and then Peter becomes very aloof. He withdraws from the Gentiles for fear of the opinion that these important men might have of him. You're hanging out with them? Peter didn't want to risk that. And so he withdrew from the Gentile Christians. He excluded them and treated them as second class in order to be seen in a positive light with the important Jewish Christians. That's essentially what happened. So the issue here for Peter, what happened is he was choosing the honor and approval of certain people over the inclusion of all of God's people. He was, his wrong motivation was poisoning his own behavior and it was hurting the church. Paul says that many people followed him in his hypocrisy. He was a hypocrite. That was the issue. And so Paul calls him out on it. And then Paul says this in conclusion. I want you to look at Galatians chapter 2. Verse 20, all of this is in quotations. Paul is speaking to Peter about the nature of the gospel here. This is not just a Jew-Gentile issue. It's bigger than that, Paul says. And I want you to see what he says. This is what our hearts desperately need to hear. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I, and this is for, for all of us, this is true, all of us. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul uses forceful language to make a forceful point. He says, I have been crucified. I have died with Christ. I no longer live. My old self, with my old motivations, my old way of life, my old thoughts, my old uh, way of worship, everything, my old self has died has been buried, and now there's a new self, and the new self is dominated now, is led, is driven by Christ, is defined by Christ, by faith in him, the one who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Do you see the massive statement Paul's making right here? Is he saying, you know, I used to be bad, but then I got religious. I used to be a scoundrel, but then I got my act together. It's not what Paul says. That's not what he believed. That's not what the gospel says. What Paul is saying is Jesus came into my life and therefore there was a death and a resurrection that has taken place. I am not what I was. I am thoroughly made new, a new creation. And that's true for every person who turns to Jesus Christ in faith. We're not an improved version of our former selves. We're new. Now, how does that change our motivations and our, and our righteousness and the things that we do? Right? Well, think about this. When we perform for the approval of others, and we do it all the time, we do it even unconsciously, it's so natural to us. When we perform for the approval of others, for their acceptance, what are we doing? We're earning. We're constantly earning all the time. You have to earn honor and acclaim and applause and respect and esteem. It doesn't come for free. And y'all know the truth, the sad truth about it? is that you're going to have to wake up tomorrow and you're going to have to earn it all over again because we are fickle people. We'll forget about you. We'll move on to the next person. You do something good and impressive, great. Well, somebody's going to do something better than you. How are you going to top that? You know your own heart. We're fickle. We move on. We've got to earn it again. We've got to maintain it all over again the next day, right? We're constantly asking ourselves, what can I do to make myself acceptable, to be somebody? But y'all, what does the gospel say? What do we just see in Galatians 2? 
Gospel means good news, right? Not good advice. Not a how-to on how to get better. It means good news about something that has been done. I live, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The gospel says that Jesus loved you without regard for any good thing that you've done. And it gets better than that. Jesus actually loved you in spite of all the bad that you've done. Jesus loved you without any good in your record, right? You couldn't earn it. And Jesus loved you in spite of all the bad. He loved you when you were at your very worst, when you had blown it. Jesus loved you all the same, all the more. And that's why Paul says he gladly gave himself for you on the cross. Jesus died to save you from both your bad, good, bad deeds and your good deeds. Jesus died for you. This is the good news. Listen, what, what the gospel tells you right here where you sit, you are accepted. You are approved, fully, finally, once and for all, by God himself. Can I say that again? You are accepted, you are approved, fully, finally, by the God of the universe himself, based on nothing good that you've done to earn it, based exclusively on what's been done for you in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is our acceptance. He is our approval. Something that we cannot earn, something you don't have to maintain because you cannot lose it. It has been granted to you as a gift of free grace. You receive it by faith. You notice how Paul points us to Jesus' motivation. Do you think Jesus came to earth with a mixed motive? You think Jesus came to earth, you know, with, with, a, with an ulterior motive? What he might get back out of us, you know, if he can just trick us into following him? What, is, what does Paul say about Jesus' motivation? He loved me and gave himself for me. Pure. He came for you. Now ask yourself this. In light of that grace, how silly is it to scratch and claw for the fickle, meaningless approval of people when you already have in full the eternal approval of God? Isn't it silly to, to say it that way? Why would I consider your acceptance more precious than the acceptance that Jesus has died to give me? It's, there's, it's not even in the same conversation. You know, I said this a minute ago. Jesus did not just die to save you from your bad things, to save you from your obvious sins. He died to save you from the good things that you've done for the wrong reasons. And oh, we've got a bucket full of them. He died to save you from the good things you've done when your motivation was hypocritical. Because that in itself is a sin too. And he died to cover it all. He died to save you from fake religion and from hypocritical motivation. Y'all, if you're like me, you grew up in the Bible Belt. And this, is, this saturates us beyond what we can, I think, even recognize. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means act right, do good, look good, fit in, and as long as everybody thinks you're doing well, then you're doing well. Smile and shake hands and put on a, put on a face. Be a hypocrite if it takes it. But make sure that everybody else knows that you're doing okay. Then you'll be a good Christian. A lot of us grew up that way. A lot of us still carry that with us. 
And it's so, it's so ingrained in us because it's all we've ever known. Y'all, no more. Not the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus sets us free from that. That is fake religion. That gets us nowhere with God. There is no reward. What, what you think of me ultimately, eternally, will make no difference at all. Only if I have the acceptance and approval of God, which he has granted to me and to you free of charge through his son Jesus. This is good news that our hearts need to hear. In Jesus Christ alone, can your heart be so truly satisfied, so fully accepted and approved, your heart can be so truly satisfied that you can delight to do good for God alone. Only through the gospel of Jesus is that possible. Otherwise, you're going to scratch and claw for what we can provide for you in temporary measure, and you better wake up and do better tomorrow, or we'll forget about you. Is that how you want to live? Sounds pretty bad when I, when I say it like that, but that's what it is. Only in Christ can your heart be so truly satisfied that you can do good for God's sake alone. Well, what if nobody ever thanks me for it? What if, what if nobody ever notices? All the better, Jesus says. For your Father who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. Let's pray. Lord, I need this so badly this morning. And I pray for us where we sit right now. We need this. We, know, we all know it if we're honest. We know the intoxication of human opinion. We so desperately want to be seen as something in the eyes of others. And Father, I pray that even though that in itself is sinful, Lord, that you'd show us that, it, that the motivation to want that is, is it's, you, you created us with that motivation. We're just meant to find it in you. We're meant to look to you for who we are, for our identity. We're meant to look to you for our salvation, to make us something that, that we, we otherwise could never be. And so, Lord, I pray that that, that that desire that is in us that will not go away, that we wouldn't merely try to squash it this morning, but that we would redirect it, that we would look to you, our all-sufficient, all-satisfying Savior. Father, would you, would you convict our hearts this morning where we have really missed it on this? We all have. So, so much of the good that I do or that I think about doing is, is filtered through what other people will think if I do it. And so, Father, we, we don't need just a little correction here. We don't need a little improvement. We need wholesale change. We need transformation. Father, point us to the gospel of Jesus. Point us to what Jesus did with perfect and pure motivation. He looked upon us in our sin and he loved us so much that he'd give his own life for us. That we can now live as new creations and we can live by faith in the Son of God. Our motivation can be pure. Father, um, as, as we, I pray, wrestle with this in our own hearts this morning, uh, lead us not into despair. This is not a despairing thing. This is a freeing thing. This is, a, this is an opportunity for us to apply your grace to an area that a lot of us, we just miss it. We just miss it. 
Um, thank you, Lord, that you didn't just die for the bad stuff, but you died for the good stuff when we've done it um, for any reason other than to glorify you. And so, Lord, turn our hearts this morning to the preciousness, to the, to the, the surpassing value of knowing Christ, that in him, in, in his perfect heart motivation, that he might endow us with the same, that in looking at him, our eyes become clear and our motives become pure, that we want to love and obey you, God, for you, with you as the reward, and that through, the, that through your wonderful grace, we would see that as the greatest treasure there ever was. What can man do for me? Nothing. Ultimately, nothing. You've done it all. And so, Lord, change us this morning. Make us the kind of people who don't just do good things, but, Lord, people who understand the why, that it's rooted in you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond in song this morning.